Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with the whole usual crew. We have our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, guys. And our senior staff writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi. So we've gathered to talk about two major events involving white guys beating each other down in war, uh, which is, of course, Game of Thrones and Dunkirk. And life. Yes. <laughs> well, with the, both of them feature pop stars in them. And we, we can come up with other parallels between Game of Thrones and Dunkirk. So Dunkirk is the Christopher Nolan movie that is kind of the big movie opening this weekend. Although, as we'll talk about, there are some other interesting ones out there. But I thought we'd start with Game of Thrones. We discussed it briefly last week because Joanna had been at the premiere. And obviously, Game of Thrones is a big deal for all of us. But now that the season premiere has aired, we've all seen it. We've all kind of seen where the season is going. Uh, we thought we'd just dive into it briefly because we all love the show and want to talk about it. Mike, I haven't talked to you really at all about the Game of Thrones premiere. I don't know uh, where you stand on the show at this point. So I'm kind of curious about what you thought of where uh, where we landed back in Westeros. I, I, was, I thought it was a good episode. It kicked everything off. I was excited to see everybody. I was glad we got some Daenerys at the end. I liked the whole shall we begin thing. I can't I can't keep track of. I mean, the 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 intro thing is helpful to remind you about like when the hound is burying some skeleton. You're like, oh, yeah, I kind of vaguely remember that. Thank God for Joanna and her like 17 <laughs> explainer pieces because between Game of Thrones and Twin Peaks, like I literally don't know what I'm looking at until afterwards when I go on VF.com and read what jo- Joanna's explanations. But I thought it was good. I, I, I mean, I was excited. It's like, it's just fun. There's not that many shows. I can't think of another show uh, at this point where you're just like so psyched. It's like the Super Bowl you know, for this thing coming back. So I have no complaints. And I didn't even mind the Ed Sheeran thing. I guess there's a whole world of people who are upset about that. I'm Whatever. It's Ed Sheeran. He's fine. What were people so upset about with the Ed Sheeran thing? I couldn't really... It's like a cameo is not that like a new thing. Was it just that it took... It was so obviously him that it took them out of the world. Was that it? I think that's the main complaint. And the cameos that they've had in the past have been really subtle and just like less famous people like Gary Lightbody, like that's not going to stick out for you. You know, like you might not even know until after you see the episode that that's who you were looking at. Ed Sheeran's just a more famous person. And he was given actual lines of dialogue. And um, and I think there and was he's the- saying, you know, you, even if you don't recognize him, you might hear his voice and be like, oh, yeah, that guy. I liked his singing, but and, and I actually didn't mind the cameo at all, to be honest with you. Like when I was in the premiere, I knew he was in this episode. And when I was in the premiere, he starts singing like he's off screen when you hear him singing. And I just started laughing because I was like, here we go. Here comes Ed Sheeran. <laughs> um, and I thought he was fine, you know. But yeah, I think that I think it is sort of like this super famous person in in a show that has a history of building its world around non-famous actors um, for the most part. And there's all the meta layer of the fact that Maisie Williams is like a huge Ed Sheeran fan, which I do think kind of came through in that scene. Like it was sort of thematic because Arya's character is supposed to be having like kind of a good time with these guys. But, you know, Maisie was not, I think, she was performing like a little bit more giddily than she usually does. And I think that was just because she was performing with a pop star. She really admires, but like it's five minutes. So I don't understand being angry about five minutes of a TV show. I don't know. Also, in my opinion, Maisie and Sophie Turner cannot do anything wrong. Those two characters are so great. And, um, I mean, the opening scene was just totally what you wanted from game of Thrones. And then I enjoyed, even though it was totally unrealistic and silly, I enjoyed like um, 
Jon Snow and Sansa like bickering in front of everybody <laughs> and poor Jon Snow being like, we could, you know, we can't do this in front of the whole group. Well, you don't feel like that's realistic. I feel like that's like every power dynamic I've ever seen is that like someone brings something up in front of the group that they should have taken privately and then the person in charge gets mad. It's like every like middle manager in America, Jon Snow just trying to get everyone in line. I guess that's actually true. Yeah. I mean, she shouldn't be operating that way, but of course, I guess people do. Yeah, they. I mean, the, these guys really need to come up with like a pre-meeting strategy. So they're on the same page in front of their employees. Just, just get slack, guys. Just take yeah. the DMs, take care of it. And yeah, then hash it out. Hash it out but and you, be on the but, same page. That's all. I mean, the whole the whole show is basically like prepping for a gigantic war on 15 fronts across the entire world. Um, but this one really did have that feeling of like, oh man, like such shit is going to go down like all over the place, which I, which I, I enjoy that. I think that that's fun. Yeah. You can feel the budget kind of just like teeming. Like it's just like, <laughs> like it's just like, there's just like money swirling around. You're like, oh, this is going to be big. I never, I don't get the people. And I, Joanne, I think you might've had this complaint a little bit that like that there's so much scene setting that we're kind of watching all of the characters move into place of where they need to be. And uh, Joanna, you also pointed out that stuff like the hound and watching his character development, even though I also did not remember that house or the people in it. Uh, I feel like just watching everyone get into place is really fun. Like I've, we've been with these characters for so long that I don't mind that like Arya is not really doing anything after she kills all the phrase. And if she's traveling for five episodes a season, that's cool because I want to see what Arya is up to. I mean, I don't think she will be. I think this season is going to, you know, it's only seven episodes and 13 episodes total left of the show. So I think things are going to start going really fast. But that is a huge criticism of my part. I heard a lot of people who didn't like this episode because they felt like nothing happened, which just blows my mind because I don't know, an entire house was assassinated. So I don't know what to tell you, but um, <laughs> the it's, it's the it's the first act of the Blues Brothers. Like they're getting the band back together, you know, yeah. Gonna- <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, exactly. Like, I think the best example of this is the Hound where like the show for, you know, for whatever reason needs the Hound and Thoros and Beric, these these characters who are like tertiary characters to get up north. But the fact that it took time for them to have this protracted scene where they talk about sort of like cosmic justice and fate and mortality and religion and all this sort of stuff that felt like old school thrones to me, which I really like, which is just like people talking in rooms, which is different from massive wildfire explosions, which is also fun. But like, I like this people talking in rooms thing. And and the fact that they took the time on this journey North, to have this moment for these characters who aren't our main characters, I thought was great storytelling. I thought it was really good. That that scene, those scenes in particular with the Hound felt very true to what the books are like. I mean, I've always thought that the books, something I really like about them is that they're really about history and there's this sort of like sadness everywhere, like time has passed and people have died. And and this that was a really nice reflective bit, you know, kind of couple scenes where we're sort of getting an emotional sense of like what's been lost in, in any kind of all the anonymous people who died in these many wars that we've seen. So I thought that that was a really, considering that we're now past the original material from the books, I thought that was a really nice kind of thematic continuation of, of what I think makes the books really good. Also, nobody says the C word like Rory McCann as the hound. <laughs> this is true. I mean, I just want a gif of that with audio. Can, I mean, can somebody, is Rory that possible? McCann's amazing. 
yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Richard, and and with Mike. Both very <laughs> equally good points about about this great scene. And and I, you know, I've said elsewhere, I really don't know how much I'm in the tank for this episode because I saw it at the premiere on the big screen with the orchestra and all the people who are really excited to see it. Like, I don't know how much that flavored my opinion. I'll be interested to see if there's any sort of drop off in my opinion uh, this Sunday. But I'm I'm very I've kind of gotten to a place where I've let go of my previous like obsessively comparing it to the books because as Richard points out we're just like shot way past the books this is a different show now it's not as good in my opinion as the show was the first four seasons when it was more you know adapting a a book series that's that's very very good but it's still one of the best shows on television it's a different show it's not as good in my opinion but it's still one of the best so like we can enjoy or i can enjoy watching it oh the other thing i want to say to bring it back to our our theme of this podcast our alleged theme of this podcast which is award season is that executive producer brian cogman on twitter revealed on sunday that john bradley who plays samuel tarley who had to do that protracted montage <laughs> disgusting montage oh yeah <laughs> Filmed that over three days last year while the rest of the cast was at the Emmys winning all the awards. <laughs> so extra love for John Bradley for having to do that instead That's of like going so to the That's like so staying in character as Sam, too, that he just like stays back and does the drudgery while everyone else parties. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. I thought that montage was so interesting compared to what this show normally does. Like, I feel like I've never seen anything quite that, like, visually inventive in that way. That was very Breaking Bad in a way for Game of Thrones. Uh, I loved loved them changing up their style. Yeah, I think last season with the introduction of the finale, the set to Ramin Javadi's Light of the Seven, which is like a really slow sort of tension building introduction that to me felt unlike anything they'd ever done and i was really pleased to see them sort of experimenting a little bit and this this uh you know poop montage also for better or for worse <laughs> also felt like an experimentation and so it's it's fun to see them feel like it you know sort of test their boundaries in their last 13 hours or plus of of television i called it um poop soup stomp no <laughs> it, it had this like rhythmic <laughs> sort of quality to it there have been um, a lot of um remixes made already uh you can find them on youtube so i don't i really don't think i want to rewatch that <laughs> at all what about euron Greyjoy? we got to talk about him but oh you mean, you mean uh, like <laughs> yeah exactly like he looked like he was in like a good produ- like a production of i don't know pirates of penzance yeah, yeah, so, yeah. but like a but like an edgy one right yeah. <laughs> i think they're trying to make him like evil oberon they're like we really we miss oberon martell we can't bring Pedro Pascal back from the dead until the Night King gets uh, south of the wall. So, uh, you know, let's let's make Euron. Because, yeah, he just got not only a costume makeover, a lot of new eyeliner, but also just a complete personality infusion. And uh, Pilo Esbeck, the actor who plays him, is quite charismatic um, in his other projects. So I was actually kind of surprised last year that they didn't really get that character to land. Um whether or not he's landing this year, I couldn't tell you, but he's certainly they're certainly like trying something different with him for sure. Vice called him the Donald Trump of Game of Thrones, which is no, pretty funny. No, no. <laughs> he's way more roguishly charming or is roguishly charming at all compared to Donald Trump. But I do think that um I do think that Jamie and him are headed for a little hand to hand combat, right? I mean, that seems that seems fairly obvious, especially after the hands joke. Hand to golden hand combat. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna like battle over Cersei or something. I mean, you know, oh right, which which feels hey that, that's fine. That I, that sounds exciting. I'm I'm into that. Uh, yeah. Joanna, I'm I'm curious. You know, just kind of considering this whole episode. Um, uh, you know, I know you've written about it, and people should go read it. But like, what would you say was the most kind of like the biggest Easter egg, or the most surprising thing, or the sort of the most telling thing about like where the story could be headed? Was there anything in this episode that really felt like it was indicating something about the the future of the series? Yeah, I would say what I'm considering to be a future vision from Bran of the Army of the Dead. Um, I think this is more evident on on the big screen, certainly to my eyes it was, um, that when you see this sort of army of the dead marching with all these giants and other things, that they're walking on green grass. And that's a crazy thing to see because in the all of history of Westeros, the army of the dead has never been south of the wall. So, you know, if they're marching on green grass, they're definitely south of the wall. So uh, there's no proof so far that everything the brand sees of the future. Last year, he saw Cersei's wildfire before it happened. So we know he can see the future. There's no proof that everything he sees of the future must come true. So maybe this is like a possible future sort of vision. But uh, to me, that felt like a huge game changer. The the episode really hit it too with like Jim Broadbent's character who kept saying like, all this has happened before and it'll happen again, but the wall has been there for 8,000 years. So we're fine. I mean, to bring it back to Mike's Trump analogy, like the wall is this big, like subject of conversation throughout the episode. We got the wall. We're fine. Uh, Sansa says a similar thing. The wall is there. We don't have to worry about the army of the dead undead. But if um, Bran's vision is true, then I'd say the wall is not going to last till the end of Game of Thrones. And then, you know, Westeros has to grapple with what that looks like. So The problem is the wall isn't transparent because if you drop a sack of drugs over it, right? it's going to hurt someone. So, so you would just it, it has knock- to come down and be rebuilt. <laughs> you could have a Night King climbing right up that wall. You'd never know. <laughs> they should have thought of that. Yeah. When they yeah, built like, it. Yeah. Yeah, Speaking of, of of like real world analogs, I had just read that horrifying New York magazine story about how like climate change were all completely doomed. And I couldn't help watching this episode just thinking it's just an inverted version of like what's actually happening to us all. But instead, right. like summer is coming and we are all just fucked. <laughs> right. Like yeah. the Night King is like is on, on fire. Game of Thrones found its 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 best allegory yet is yes. it's just yeah. Yeah. We're, we're all doomed. And then for escapism from our daily horrors, we watch Twin Peaks, which is uh, baffling instead also, of uh, escapist. Also, very horror filled this week. Um, it was the oh. most. It was the most violent episode of Twin Peaks. Ever. I mean, like maybe no, definitely Fire Walk with Me is kind of more a little more disturbing. But this was a very violent episode of Twin Peaks that is getting compared to Clockwork Orange and a number of other things. And it was really, it was actually like harder to watch the game of thrones game of thrones is usually the most brutal show you know you're gonna watch in a given week but watching twin peaks directly after i was like god this is this is too violent for me so but you know joanna can you can you explain who is richard horn I, the, the 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 young man who's doing all this horrifying stuff by the way doesn't it feel it feels a little throwbacky like you don't see violence like this on tv yeah anymore i don't you know what i mean there's something yeah. like he it's seems kind like, of a little anachronistic. Yeah. The, this sort of like just straight up like men beating up women stuff. You're just like, God almighty. 
There are other um, things about that episode that felt anachronistic to me, like that there was a dumb, ditzy blonde character, which I feel like you don't really see on anything yeah. anymore. But I was like, really? Yeah. This, this Is there nothing else going on? This is just a dumb blonde? Okay. It's interesting um, that Lynch is just not in PC culture of uh, 2017, for better or worse. I mean, sometimes I think that makes the show kind of more interesting than yeah. a lot of other stuff. But there's some points where I'm like, okay, problematic. Like, yeah. you know. Uh, Richard Horn, though the show has not like officially, officially confirmed it, I believe like the most uh, prevalent theory is that he is Audrey Horn's son. And then there's like the the scarier implication that, um, you know, given some of the things that have been said this season, that perhaps Audrey Horn, when she was like, I don't know, comatose in the hospital or something like that after the explosion at the end of Twin Peaks, um, was perhaps sexually assaulted by um, Evil Cooper so maybe oh, he's God. the product of that, that he's like evil Cooper's son with uh, Sherilyn Fenn's character, Audrey Horn, is the wow. most prevalent theory, but it is not being confirmed. But he is at least, uh, you know, his sh- Audrey Horn's parents are his grandparents. Her only other sibling is Johnny Horn, who I don't think was, you know, having kids, but maybe he was. So it really feels like this has to be her son, but we haven't seen her Sherilyn Fenn in the series yet. So um But we think that she'll that she'll come back. She's not dead, right? She's Audrey? not dead and Sherilyn Fenn is confirmed for the series, but I don't know if she's just gonna come back in the finale or something. I don't know. You know, Lynch could do anything. I I cannot predict. <laughs> Can I ask a, a kind of um perhaps embarrassing question? As someone who has never seen a full episode of Twin Peaks ever, oh is there like a narrative here? Is there like a, are we, are we telling a story or is it just kind yeah. of like impressionistic weird stuff? No, the thing that's always been great about it, and Joanna, tell me if you disagree, but it's always been a weird mix of like kind of regular old um, detective story, right. kitchen sink, whatever, and then really, really weird, abstract kind of metaphysical stuff. But that has to do with the with the plot in some sense. It does plug in. Only Joanna understands how it plugs in. I have no <laughs> idea. I just it washes over me. But she could actually tell you like the difference between the two, the white and the black lodge. I was read that in your article. I didn't even know there were two lodges, Joanna, when I read that. <laughs> well, I mean that's that's the thing is there's David Lynch is one mastermind behind the show, but then there's also Mark Frost, who uh, I think is really deep on the mythology and and the soap opera and murder mystery aspect of the show. So especially the original series really feels like a combined effort of like a if you watch the original series it feels like a throwback soap and then overlaid you know over it is this weird lynchian surrealism and so it's just this weird mixture of the two and i think that's frost and lynch working together frost wrote this novelization this book called secret history of twin peaks that came out uh, at the end of last year i believe or maybe early this year and uh it's just all nitty-gritty mythology stuff so they have really thought through the details of this universe there's just a lot of weirdness <laughs> laid over it so um the the bit you know the main mystery originally was who killed laura palmer what happened to laura palmer famously i would say the main mystery of this one is where is Dale Cooper and sort of how do we how do we find him and get him where he needs to be and who's the real Cooper? Would you say that's right, Mike? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we we know the audience knows, but the, the characters in the show are trying to figure it all out. So well, and how and then even for the audience, like can he ever get back to himself and be right. re re reassembled as like one good person instead of like. <laughs> 
evil. I mean, it's so crazy. It's I mean, but it's, it, it's, it works though, kind of. I mean, I don't know what happened in the God of Light with the nuclear, all that stuff. I have no idea what any of that meant, but it was amazing to watch. I mean, some of it's very sort of like Kubrickian. You're just like, okay, I don't know what's happening now. Again, Joanna, you probably know because well, you read that book. Maybe, but you know, or, or I can take my best guess, and I'll probably be wrong. But the 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 comparison I like to make. Or, or the metaphor I particularly like for this season of Twin Peaks is it feels like Lynch and Frost every week are mixing us a cocktail and it's a different cocktail every week. And it's going to be a different ratio of like weirdness to soap opera, to mystery, to comedy, to what have you. And yeah. it's clear that there are certain stories, you know, Lynch just shot all this footage in sort of like this big messy way. And then, um, you know, the two of them are sort of putting together each episode uh, with like, you know, this one has a dash of bitters. This one has like a whole glug of vodka or whatever because there are storylines like Jerry Horn being high and lost in the forest or Dr. <laughs> Jacoby like giving his YouTube rants that really have nothing to do with the main plot and are just sort of like sprinkled in there I think when the episode needs a little bit more levity or something like that so yeah. it's just really fascinating that you could get episode 8 which was completely bonkers and weird and surreal and everyone was scratching their head over it you get episode 9 which really focused a lot on Dina Ashbrook's character Bobby Briggs who was like the worst character of the original series and then has been like totally redeemed by this return in a way that no TV revival has really ever used the passage of time to show you the way in which a character has changed. It was like, felt like a really emotional episode. And then episode 10 is this like brutally violent exploration of domestic violence. Cause it's not just the Richard Horn character, right? It's like the Amanda Seyfried plot and like all of that. There's just a lot of brutality towards women in this episode. And so, um, it's just it's a different show every week, but the same characters and plots, and I don't know how they're pulling it off, but they are. And um, not not all episodes are great, but the whole experiment I think is fabulous. Do you think? Can I ask you this, Joanna? Do you think that Kyle McLaughlin will win the Emmy for Best Actor for his abs alone in this week's episode? I mean- yeah. He should. Um, no, more seriously, he's playing like he's played three different characters in this. He's, he's uh, playing three characters. Now, one of them is pretty annoying. I, my brother is like just finally just given up that Dougie Jones is like a character that's going to continue to exist. Um, and I feel a little bit bad for Naomi Watts. Like she's got the sort of least rewarding or, or least forgiving role in this. But as evil Cooper, he's incredible. I never imagined that Kyle McLaughlin could could play evil that way, and and any type of sort of technical like, all right, he's doing three roles is is kind of amazing. I, and I don't you think people would just love to for it's like, it would be like a lifetime achievement, like for the first one and for this one, like you are the man. The timing's a little weird, right? Because it, you know the Emmy nominations won't be until months and months and months after this season wraps up next year. That's when Twin Peaks will be eligible. I think if we see Kyle MacLachlan, if if the the original flavor Dale Cooper comes back a little bit more before the season's over, so we really see him play like three to four characters this season. Yeah, um, I think that will further cement his chances if he's just Dougie and evil until the end I, I don't know but I think maybe revisiting that old character that people loved so much a bit more in this series um, might help you know land what you say that like lifetime achievement sort of we remember you from when you first wowed us and here you're doing this other amazing thing too all in the same show 
and he was nominated twice for Emmys uh, for the original Twin Peaks, and uh, and he was also uh, he won a Golden Globe. So there's uh, there's a track record there. I anyway, he's got my vote. It's going to be very hard it. to topple Kyle, and I think uh, and D- David Lynch is almost the best supporting actor in the whole show. Uh, yeah, David Lynch or Miguel Ferrer. I don't know. One of those two. <laughs> They're yeah. both amazing. So, yeah. Uh, and Jim Belushi is in it for some reason, and I can't even believe he's alive, <laughs> personally. Before we leave TV behind entirely, I this is uh, kind of going back to the Game of Thrones beat, but I wondered if we could talk about the new series from David Benioff and D.B. Weiss that got announced yesterday that's going to HBO, where it's a uh, about an alternate history of the Civil War. It's No, it's about a third Civil War. Uh, in which the South basically never surrendered. Uh, Joanna, you wrote about it uh, on VF.com yesterday. There was kind of a fascinating immediate Twitter backlash to it. Yeah. Um, How are we feeling about this show? You know, I I will tell you that kind of the last two people that I want exploring racial dynamics in America are Weiss and Benioff, with all due respect to their, their, you know, their genius, because I think they are very talented. Um, They... What's interesting to me about the backlash is that the ba- you know the Twitter backlash sort of the Twitterati think that their backlash is going to change anything about HBO's decision, which like it's not. Do people like, really believe that? The, oh, so many people were like, "Well, this show's never going forward." Have you seen the backlash? I was like, "Are you kidding me? You think HBO is going to deny Weiss and Benioff anything at this point?" You know, no. That's not going to happen. Um, you know, some good news is that they've hired Nichelle Tramble Spellman and Malcolm Spellman, uh, who are, um, you know, non-white writers to sort of bolster. And then they made sure that that was a big part of their announcement, you know, to be like, it's not just these two white guys. It's other people too telling the story. Um, <laughs> you know, it was part of the announcement. It was part of all the quotes coming out of Weiss and Benioff and Casey Bloys of HBO. And so I think there was just sort of this preemptive defense. They knew that there was going to be some blowback on this. Um, but I don't know. I, I It doesn't feel like the right thing for them to... I mean, first of all, I would recommend they take a vacation after a Game of Thrones, to be honest with you. Like, this is a grueling show. I feel like they should have taken a couple years off. But if they want to strike while the iron's hot, I feel like there's a number of other... Like, try to do a movie. Try to do something. Like, maybe don't dive right back into another HBO series that will inevitably be, be so closely compared to Game of Thrones. So, those are my thoughts. Richard and Mike, did you guys follow this news yesterday? Um, I did a little bit. I th- I saw a kind of funny tweets about it, like, you know, they're linking to the thing about, like, HBO to do a show, like, imagining if the South, won- or, you know, like, or something, and they're like, that, sh- that, that sure exists, it's called The Wire, or, like, you know, people talking about <laughs> Ava DuVernay's 13th, the documentary, you know, so there were, th- th- that kind of pointed stuff, um, I think it was just, I think in some ways it had more to do with the wording of the press release, you know, imagine a world where, you know, sort of the racist prevailed or whatever, Um but I don't know. I, you know, I absolutely understand the sort of concerns about it. Um, I, I also feel like the tendency to really jump on something that we don't really know very much about at all. You know, you saw it kind of with something like To the Bone where a, 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 a kind of poorly cut trailer came out and everyone was like, oh, that movie is going to be offensive to anorexia and eating disorders. And it was like, well, okay. I mean, we, we I, a little bit of preemptive, like, negative anticipation of something is warranted and is, is is part of the conversation we have about these things at this point and they wouldn't release press releases if they didn't want conversation about it but this kind of absolute cut and dry absolutely not it's going to be terrible it's like well 
you you they're probably right that it is that's going to be problematic but like let's you know hey look ryan murphy did i in my admittedly white male opinion did a pretty good job with people versus oj and and using that strategy of making sure he had enough you know people in the room who could speak authoritatively from various perspectives so um and these guys you know that's a hell of a track record game of thrones so i'm cautiously interested i mean personally it sounds a little bit nightmarish to me the same way that the handmaid's tale is not my idea of like a fun mm-hmm. evening do you know what i mean like i just i don't i just i don't know like like actual slavery was bad enough and we're gonna do like alternate reality slavery i don't just just for me that's not like a fun sunday night necessarily but maybe it will be uh really really great and and demand to be watched you know i i i, I tend to worry with somebody with guys who have uh, had this much success with something that's ultimately as seriously as we all take it like a frivolous fantasy thing that when they get like serious they're gonna get real serious and yeah. that would be my concern is it just could be like a thudding yeah. thing this is similar you know I, I, anyway i don't a know creeping self-importance too yeah you, be you know, wor- that's like, what i would be concerned about i mean they there's people are already taking game of thrones internally uh a little too seriously in my humble opinion after we talked about it for like 15 minutes yes <laughs> we are part of that problem well i mean I when ed sheeran has to quit twitter because he dared to show up for a few minutes, right like it's like it's it's, it's a fantasy show appar- i mean so, apparently well according to ed sheeran that's fake news that he was gonna quit twitter anyway but who knows if you want to believe well, a ginger maybe it- but um the um i think another sort of mark again or I, you know, I, I agree entirely with Richard that like I'm a little tired of us prejudging projects entirely based on like the log line. You know, it's just it feels like I don't know, see the thing and then have an informed opinion on it. Um, that being said, I think another sort of mark against this project confederate uh is that coulson whitehead's book the underground railroad which is an alternative like view of slavery in the civil war like an alt history book uh you know came out so recently was so massively successful and award-winning you know and from uh, you know an african-american writer that it felt like it feels like we just had a you know why not adapt this or something? You know what I mean? It's just sort of well, like it is being adapted uh, by Barry Jenkins, right? Uh, for and Amazon, okay, yeah. yeah. So, so like, like they're going to have some pretty fierce competition from yeah. you know the director of Moonlight. Okay, so more accurately, why play in that pool if that pool is already <laughs> being dominated by this? You know, so like and I would I, so much rather see the Barry Jenkins show. You know, exactly. like well, if, you'll if given a choice, see so. both, which is uh, you know we'll see who wins in that head to head. Well, what what would we what would we ask them to adapt next, Benioff and Weiss? I have a great we... idea for this. Oh, David, okay. David Benioff wrote an amazing novel called City of Thieves in two thousand eight. It's so good. I don't love everything that David Benioff has written as a novelist. Um, you know, the Twenty Fifth Hour was adapted into a good movie, but like City of Thieves is a great story based on like based a little bit on his own like Russian family heritage and stuff like that, and it's um. It's a World War II novel. It's like, it's, I have, when I was a bookseller, I sold hundreds and hundreds of copies of that book. I never sold a copy of that book that someone didn't come back and tell me they loved it. You can give it to grandparents. You can give it to kids. Everyone loves this book that David Benioff wrote. He should adapt that into a movie. Like, that's what he should do next. And uh, I don't I'm, know. I want their take on the Stonewall riots. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know what I don't know what DBY should do, but that's what David Benioff should do. And I actually kind of think they should do something separately. It's sort of like when Key and Peel were like, "We're finishing our show. We love each other, but we're going to do things separately right now." You know, and like uh, Keanu, the thing they did together was okay, but what Jordan Peel did on his own was like amazing. And and Keegan Michael Key is also doing, you know. So I, I feel like you know, divide the team up and sort of conquer a little bit, and then come back together, something like that. I, that's what I would say. I want some just something with Maisie Williams, just the Maisie Williams series. That I don't be, know. She uh, just kills people all day. You know, uh, Sophie Turner is basically the future of X Men. Like she's kind of got her next seven years lined up. But Maisie Williams seems more of like an, an unknown factor. Well, Maisie's also in an X Men movie. She's just in a different X Men movie. So they're oh God, both, right. oh my God. Uh, you know, shackled for better or worse to the X Men franchise. Right I have now. seen no the greatest minds of my generation <laughs> destroyed by X Men money anyway sure that's great richard you reviewed dunkirk for vanityfair.com your review i think is really lovely and elegant which it seems like the movie itself is also pretty elegant uh you didn't write the whole thing about harry styles which i was surprised i thought that was what we had agreed to is that it would just be about what he does in the movie but uh, tell me how the rest of the movie distracted you from harry styles well there there will be another harry styles dunkirk post uh, written by me i believe on the website of friday the 21st so <laughs> that's true fear not I, I did expect your review to be about more than harry but i forgot that we actually had you writing all harry posts yeah so the movie you know i don't know if anyone was interested in, in this kind of backstage drama but anyway the the, sc- the way the screenings were set up there was a, a monday morning screening i was out of town so i had i missed it then all these reviews came out and i'm sitting there looking on my phone at the airport just like kicking myself and then sort of over the next two days i saw the movie on wednesday night that kind of disappointment and fo- sort of like FOMO or whatever, like kind of coalesced or hardened into a sort of like determination to to be the dissenting voice. You know, there have been a couple people who were like not as into it, and but there were a lot of people calling it a masterpiece and everything. So I went on Wednesday night, not hoping to not like it. Of course, you always want to like a movie, but like just sort of thinking I might be the contrarian. Um, I'm not the contrarian. I thought it was great. I saw, you know, I got to. I was lucky enough to see it on the 70 millimeter IMAX uh, at Lincoln Square here in New York, and got a good center seat because I showed up an hour early because I'm a crazy person. And it was just, it's, it's, it, it is exciting. It's because it is, you know, an adventure action war movie, but it's really something much different than that. It's an, it's kind of an art film. It has this real sense of poetry to it. Um, it's not really conventionally narrative, um, you know, and not that Nolan has always been conventionally narrative before, obviously Memento Inception have, you know, sort of devices that they use. Um, but this is not Saving Private Ryan, even where you have, you know, this kind of troop of characters that you follow. Uh, there are people that we are following through this kind of nightmare, but um, we don't really know anything about them. Uh, and it's just, I don't know. It's 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 an it's a really interesting kind of operatic um, art piece. How does it compare to you? To like, I mean, are, are Christopher Nolan fans going to like it? Do we care if they like it? I mean, th- these are kind of like some of the most like. Uh, intense fans on the internet who I think Warner Brothers is counting on to really come out for this. But uh, how are they going to feel about this like art film opening in a big summer blockbuster slot? Well, I mean, one of the um, kind of constant battles on film Twitter or sort of on film writing on the internet is is critics you know and versus Nolan fans. Nolan fans are or some of them, many of them are sort of notoriously. Uh, rigid about their love for 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 their director um you know they really won't brook any kind of criticism um so i think the diehards yeah i mean they'll absolutely like it um 
I think that what I'm kind of what's a little more uncertain uh, is yeah what what the sort of mainstream. I mean, this is a big July release from Warner Brothers. Um, it's going up against Valerian um, and the City of a Thousand Planets, the Luc Besson movie, but I don't think that movie is really going to pose any competition to it. So really, this movie um, is kind of the biggest thing going. Uh, it's opening weekend. Uh, and I think people will go see it because the trailers have been effective. Um, you know, people tend to like a war movie. Hacksaw Ridge did pretty well. Um, I just don't know what they're going to walk away with it feeling. And, you know, when you read box office reporting and they talk about the cinema score, so the, you know, audience exit polling, um, and they give it a letter grade. I'm very curious to see what that is because I think that this movie could really suffer from people who don't like its kind of cold approach to this stuff. Um, or, you know, we'll say, we'll, you know, not really like it and then won't tell friends to see it. So, um, I don't think that this thing is a sure bet at all, actually. Um, and I'm at, so, I think somewhat surprised that Warner Brothers let this vision be what it is, though I guess, you know, Nolan has earned them enough money over the years that, uh, they, they owed him one. Was, yeah. Was, it, it, oh, go ahead, Joanna. Well, you know, I, I think Katie and I, as our like dispatches from real America, as real as the Bay Area <laughs> might be, uh, the, the dispatches we like to give was interesting to me. And this might just be my particular group of friends, but the people that I know here are actually more excited about Valerian than they are about Dunkirk for some weird reason. Um, I don't know what that is, but I, I know that Valerian has its huge detractors, but there just might be something about the, the fifth element lovers that they, they think this is what they're going to get again from it. Um, and it feels a little bit more summery than Dunkirk does. Um, because Dunkirk definitely feels like it should be a November movie. And so I'll be interested to see if, if the Nolan name alone will, will carry Dunkirk at the box office or the Harry Styles of it all will carry Dunkirk at the box office. Or if, you know, Besson is going to have some weird unexpected win this weekend. It'll be fascinating. Yeah. I think another interesting thing about its box office, Dunkirk's box office prospects potentially, um, is that this is a very British story. Um, there's not a lot of, um, there's really almost no exposition explaining what this evacuation is really when it is, um, you know, it came in an early point during the war, not, not toward the end. Um, so I wonder if that, I think that could be isolating to American audiences, but that, but also on the flip side of that, there's very little dialogue in the movie. It's, it's, you know, there's, I mean, you know, we talk about Harry Styles being in the movie and all these other people, they barely speak. It's, it's mostly just action. So it translates internationally really well. I mean, you have a couple subtitles or a little bit of dubbing and otherwise it's just visual feast. Um, so I, I think that that could help its chances. So I'm, I'm I, I, not only am I curious because, you know, of the, of the subject matter, but also because this is a big expensive studio movie made on 70 millimeter film, which doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't have anything to do with superheroes. It's not a franchise. So in some ways there is a little bit of a sense that this movie is, uh, you know, fighting for the for the soul of of, of filmmaking or something or, or Hollywood filmmaking anyway. Well, and this is the second time Warner Brothers has been in this position this summer. They came out with Wonder Woman earlier this year, which, you know, tried to defy everything about how like women can't open movies and no one cares about female superheroes overseas and kind of broke every single expectation there. So if they can pull it off twice in one summer, that's a lot to contract to congratulate themselves for. How World Wars saved Warner Brothers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, they're going to change it to WW, European not Land w. Wars. <laughs> um, yeah, and I and I think the other thing that we you know for our purposes that we, you know is definitely worth talking about is um, its awards chances, which definitely um, you know we've talked about this movie before in you know past months months ago, and 
Uh, I had mentioned that a publicist had reached out to me after I wrote something about the trailer saying it's not a drama. It's an action, you know, what thriller. Uh, I don't know what the heck that publicist is talking about. I mean, it's it's this is a this is an awardsy movie. I mean, it's really artful. Um, I mean, the technical categories, I feel like it's cinematography, it's score, it's editing. It's editing is so crucial to the, to the movie's success. It's sound mixing. You know, all of that is really there, I think, in, in a kind of Mad Max way. I also think that it would be kind of crazy. I don't know what's coming down the pike in the, in the fall. And, you know, there are only so many director slots. But if Nolan, I think, is a really good shot at it right now. We've said that so many times before. It's like it, it's crazy when you realize how much of a like Oscar bridesmaid he's been over the course of his career. Like even though after the Dark Knight getting snubbed, kind of helped inspire the expanded Best Picture field. Like even like Inception did pretty well, but uh, Interstellar didn't. Uh, he still has a tough time breaking through somehow. Well, but there's no you know. Don't tell me if this reveals some big surprise, Richard. But there's no genre storytelling attached to this one, right? And that's that's a first for. Nolan. Is that correct? Oh, no. They're fighting aliens. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the, uh, um, oh, shit, the Tom Cruise movie that I'm forgetting the title of. I can't make this joke. A Live, anymore. Die, Repeat, or whatever yeah, it's called. Yeah, whatever that movie's actually called. <laughs> um, uh, no, you're right, Joanna. There's no, this is a straightforward, r- you know, true life historical drama or thriller. Um, and I think that in that sense, some awards voters would be in the Academy or anywhere else might see this as his first, you know, capital S serious movie. Exactly. And so that might be, you know, the thing that could break him through this time. If there's no spinning tops or um, black holes or whatever, or Batman (laughs) or whatever, you know, I love, I love a lot of those movies. I'm not looking down my nose at genre, but as we've talked in the podcast before, Academy voters so often do. And so if, you know, if Nolan's like, Oh, fine, you want a war movie? I'll give you a weird arty war movie. Enjoy. Harry Styles is in it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Richard, in your review, you drew a comparison to Schindler's list as kind of the movie that had like a former genre guy, uh, you know, helped him take himself seriously or helped the industry take him seriously. But I feel like the even closer parallel is saving private Ryan. It's opening in late July, the way that movie did, like it's kind of similarly positioning itself. Do you see the comparisons there? I do. I mean, I think that both films are, you know, obviously from huge blockbuster directors whom studios love. And 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 both movies, Saving Private Ryan, especially in its opening, you know, famously, you know, technically marvelous uh, D-Day invasion scene. Well, they're both on beaches for one. But uh, the the filmmaking is there's just a lot of technique being applied, and it looks really interesting and sort of washed out, and and it's sort of saying similar things about the tone of war and battle, and and yeah. So I see the similarities that far. But then Spielberg has a real narrative to tell, and it's a, it's a kind of a road movie. It's a detective movie, in a sense. Um, there are characters who are sort of colorful and some maybe not larger than life, but, you know, vibrant. There is none of that in, in, in Dunkirk, really. So I think that it's a, that's really different in that sense. And I also think that they're at very different points in their careers, just if, if only because Spielberg had already had Schindler's List, you know, and already had already won an Oscar in 95 years prior. Um, I think that while Dunkirk doesn't seem as personal a film uh, to Nolan as Schindler's List did to Spielberg, um, I think that there's clearly a lot of reverence and passion in the in the project, uh, which while we've seen him make incredible, you know, sort of curios before, Nolan has always been a, a little bit of a, of a cold fish, you know, and, and in this 
I think we're sort of something cracks open. Um, so I, to me, even though the, the 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 plot elements are certainly different, um, I I think it's it's more similar to Schindler's List in terms of the, the narrative of his career. What I find fascinating about uh, kind of the Dunkirk Oscar question, and this was in uh, the piece that Chris Lee for, wrote for us uh, at VF.com, just about what its Oscar strategy is, is that a big reason it's opening in summer is because Christopher Nolan hates screeners. And when Interstellar came out, he just refused to let them send screeners for it, which uh, I think probably really did help hurt its chances with the Academy. Uh, so now he's going to really be encouraging all these voters to see it on the big screen, which from everything I can tell is really the way to see it. And then by the time uh, screener season starts, it'll be out on Blu-ray, or Blu-ray already. Um, so, I mean, for me, that just gives me the sense that it's going to have an edge this time. Like Interstellar really faltered in the Oscar race. And I feel like, I don't know, I'm rooting for Dunkirk at this point, which we'll see how that pans out when all the fall movies come out and we'll see what else is in the competition. And also I mentioned it already, but Hacksaw Ridge, as, as that movie proved last year, you can, people will forgive Mel fucking Gibson <laughs> if you tell a dramatic story about World War II. People love World War II. Uh, you know, it because it was a righteous war, whatever. So I think that that's also a major advantage that the movie has. But is this, but, I, you know, I should have asked you this earlier, but is this, I mean, you, you keep saying it's not Saving Private Ryan. Is it more than Thin Red Line? Like, is it that already? Is that what we're looking at? It's it's not so metaphysical. There's not okay. so much introspection. It's 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 not really concerned with that. I think that where that comes in is sort of in subtler sort of visual motifs and things like that. But no, I mean, Malik is is really contemplating God and, you know, ag- existential stuff. And that this Dunkirk is not that. I mean, okay. but it is in some weird, weird ways closer to Thin Red Line than it is Private Ryan. Yeah, I'm excited. This is great. Yeah, me too. I'm uh, I'm seeing it in 70 millimeter uh, tonight by myself. It's going to be intense. Hey. I know. And I Harry know. is good, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I hear, he's, uh, I hear he really holds himself well. Guys, yeah. I don't care at all about One Direction, but I love Harry Styles based on like Saturday Night Live and talk shows and Corden and everything. I just, I'm all here for whatever Harry Styles wants to do for the next many decades. So. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you as always for listening. And please find us, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it. We love hearing from you at our Twitter account at Little Gold Men. And we're all on Twitter on our own. I'm at Katie Rich, Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Mike's at Mike underscore Hogan. He had to go, but you know where to find him. This episode was edited and produced by Jordan Bell. And thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the best reaction to the extensive New York Times interview that Donald Trump gave goes to Richard Lawson. Is there like a narrative here? 